Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Tamara Piety, who is Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Associate Professor of Law at the University of Tulsa College of Law. She's a nationally, internationally recognized legal scholar writing about the legal treatment of commercial and corporate speech. Um, She's widely cited, has published a lot in the legal literature on these issues, and has a forthcoming book to be published by the University of Michigan Press called Brandishing the First Amendment. So welcome, Tamara. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to talk about an issue of tremendous public health importance and of great interest to us at the Rudd Center, the marketing of food, especially to children. Um, the, there's a very important connection between the First Amendment of the Constitution and the, the marketing of products, not just food products, but all products, uh, that a lot of people may not re- recognize. Tell me how those things are connected. Well, for a long time, they weren't connected at all. Um, since the 1930s, uh, since the New Deal, we've had, and probably even before that in the progressive area, a great era, a great deal of regulation uh, oriented towards the benefiting the public or, or protecting public from from uh, misbranded foods or um, toxic in- ingredients, unsafe products, things like that. Uh, regulating the financial markets, banks. Um, but in 1976, we have the Supreme Court uh, creating something that was known as the commercial speech doctrine. And what this did is it extended a very limited protection to some advertising and commercial activities speech um, for truthful advertising on the basis that consumers know best. Consumers know what is in their best interest, and the state ought not to intervene to keep the truth from people. And in that case, the truth in question was the price of pharmaceutical drugs. Um, Somehow, over the years, this test, this this doctrine has morphed from one that was oriented to listeners and to the public good that listeners make informed decisions to one that has is much more protective of the speech on the grounds that it shouldn't be discriminated against, that, that somehow commercial speech is um, valuable speech and ought not to be discriminated against. Uh, what we have right now, at least nominally, is still something known as an intermediate scrutiny test. That is, it's not as subject to as much um, oversight by the courts as ordinary protected speech under the First Amendment. But in practice, it's pretty strict scrutiny, at least uh, according to recent decisions. And what that means is it's harder for the government to regulate things like marketing. Um, okay. So one form of corporate speech is marketing and advertising. One form are- of, well, one form of commercial speech. Now, corporate and commercial speech are kind of a, not quite the same thing. They're, the terms are used sort of interchangeably, but uh, I, and their people have different definitions, but I would say corporate speech is anytime a corporation is speaking, and certainly a for-profit corporation is speaking. Commercial speech involves selling something, a proposition to to sell something in the market. And that could be by a corporation or it could be you and me. We could take out a classified ad and say, I want to sell my my car, and, and that, that would be commercial speech. So the way the, the courts have looked at this then, if I understand you correctly, 
is that citizens have rights to speak and corporations have rights to speak, and that whatever restrictions had existed before have been have been softened or taken away or abandoned, whatever. Um, so corporations are free to, to speak about their products. Well, that's sort of the the practical reality, although I'm hesitant to say that as a blanket rule. Um, the problem is much like the idea of corporate personhood, which was never fully articulated back in the, the late 19th century, but simply announced without a lot of rationale, there hasn't been a clear pronouncement from the court that corporations as corporations have a right to, to speak or have a First Amendment right. It has been implied when confronted with this issue and just a couple of years after the, the creation of the commercial speech doctrine in a case called First National Bank versus Bilotti, the court said that the question of whether or not a corporation has the same speech rights as people is the wrong question. The right question is, is this the kind of speech the First Amendment protects? And the answer is, yes, it is. Therefore, this particular speech on this particular occasion, it was political advertising by a bank, was protected. Uh, and that sort of shift of the question from the speaker to the content and this content neutrality or discrimination kind of framing has crept in. It crept in very early. It crept in as early as, as 1980, and it's become a more and more dominant force or dominant sort of trope in, in looking at commercial speech. So, so your, your book, Brandishing the First Amendment, how is it being, how's the First Amendment being brandished? Who's doing it and how are they doing it? Well, when you think about, if you think about um, this non-discrimination kind of idea, then any time a there's a commercial product and a corporation wants to talk about, uh, wants to advertise that product and the government wants to regulate how you can advertise, the, the company can say, well, you're discriminating against me. You're discriminating against cigarettes. You have different rules for cigarettes than for, um, than for um, I don't know, potatoes. Um, or in the case of junk food, you have different regulations for McDonald's and for than for, say, um, grocery stores, how come? That's discriminatory. And that's not how we have for decades thought about the government's power to regulate commerce. Um, we tended, I think, and I, I now may be speaking for the public health community, but I think most of us growing up in America in the last uh, 50 years or so have kind of approached social problems like this obesity crisis or drug problems or so forth as an issue of evidence. Find the problem, show that there's a problem, try to p pass regulation to fix the problem. And this new sort of way of framing uh, presents the opportunity for any of these fixes to be uh, you know, argued as discriminatory. I'll give you another example um, is securities regulation. Several people have argued that the regulations prohibiting certain kinds of advertising for initial public offerings is violates the First Amendment, that we ought to advertise new offerings of securities the same way we offer chewing gum. It's so, so interesting. So your use of the word discrimination, and I've heard you say that, that it's, almost, it's civil rights language being used to describe the rights of organizations, that 
if an organ like the tobacco companies, if they're not allowed to market their products in, in certain ways, that their their civil right has somehow been abridged. Is that true? Is that the way it's being framed? Well, that's the way it's being framed. I mean, I think it's wrong. Um, I think that kind of framing actually trivializes the very significant sacrifices and dangers that people like the lunch counter sit-in activists took in order to try to get civil rights um, legislation in the 60s. And unlike those activists, ExxonMobil, Philip Morris, these companies are not powerless, nor do they lack, they may not vote, but certainly they have pretty adequate, some might say even more than adequate representation or or at least uh, influence in the legislative process. So it is uh, somewhat disconcerting to see that legislative process produce legislation that then is invalidated through this through this sort of trope. So what are the dangers then from this way things are being perceived? Well, I mean, I think, uh, especially with the most recent case, uh, uh, Sorrell versus IMS, I think the danger is that, that uh, we will see a very politicized invalidation of a lot of legislation that, that is, is, legislation is almost never perfect. And there are certainly ways in which you could say something could be better or it could have, um, but sometimes we have to try, you know, we have to try to do something to improve the situation. And it looks like we are increasingly, the government's going to be increasingly uh, hamstrung in being able to do any kind of experiment with respect to trying to uh, adjust marketing in some way to um, to address social problems like smoking or obesity. Right. So it sounds like if if you could look at government regulation or government intervention here on a continuum from being completely in favor of industry being allowed to do whatever they want to completely protecting citizens from what might be considered harmful practices by the industry that the the thing that there's been this political shift that's been reflected in the courts that's drawn things more toward the industry ability to market the way they want and speak in the ways they want absolutely and and part of that is is um, they've been very successful in framing the public debate as one about governmental paternalism that is the government telling you what's good for you and I believe it's Abraham Lincoln who observed that the part of the function of government is to do for the individual citizen what they cannot do for themselves. And in some of these cases, we're talking about things that no individual can influence by themselves. And indeed, in the Sorrell case, we were talking about an issue that many doctors had gone to the legislature and wanted this um, this protection against their private prescription practices being sold to data mining companies. We don't want that. We, you, if you want, if it was okay with you, you could opt in. But if you didn't want it, you, the statute prohibited it. And now, in essence, what the Supreme Court has said is that whether you want to or not, you have to be a target of marketing attempts. In some cases, marketing attempts that are informed by use of your private data. Um, so let's let's talk about the implications of this for food marketing, mm-hmm. in particular directed at children. Um, where do you think this will all go, and, and how is the way people are looking at the First Amendment now going to affect the government's um, um, right to or ability to regulate that? Well, I hesitate to 
predict, I mean, if we were just going on what the case law signals, um, both the Sorrell decision and another decision from California, the Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association, which struck down California's uh, ban on sales of violent videos to children under 18, that in that opinion, the court seemed to signal that it was going to not be very receptive to any arguments about the special status of children, which if advocates were looking to try to make these arguments with respect to children's understanding of advertising and junk food adds another degree of difficulty. Uh, but some of this may depend on this, the public discussion in the, in the media outside of the courts and, and, pub, and raising awareness about the problems so that it uh, is really not, um, it's really not just a, a discussion about these sort of, which I think is an evasion, this nanny state kind of thing, but rather how can we mobilize the power of the government to do what we would like it to do for us, which is in many cases, like the very popular do not call registry, to allow us to opt out of marketing and say, I don't really want to be bombarded with this particular kind of advertising. And some of the anti-paternalism, let me just uh, say, some of this anti-paternalism argument actually hides paternalism of a different sort. And what the advocates of this anti-paternalism uh, nanny state kind of um, argument really are saying is that it's good for you to be bombarded and to learn to resist. It builds up your sort of willpower, your resistance. But of course, we know research demonstrates that we all only have so much attention, so much will. And it's a rational thing to say, look, I want to I want to have it be, con I want to only exercise it in these ways. And that idea that it's good for you, so you should have to be subjected to it, whether you want to or not, in essence is telling you, you don't know what's good for you. We know what's good for you, and it's good for you to have the companies be able to try to pitch you. So if, if companies are permitted to say just about whatever they want, in the context of food marketing, and the courts believe that people have the right to this information, and that's what is protecting the companies to speak in ways they want, is there anything left over to protect consumers? Is there are there any agents out there that can be active on this and help protect consumers if there if there's some legitimate evidence that marketing practices of some sort or by some company are having a negative impact on individuals or the public health in general? Well, I think there is. I think uh, focusing on this, the commercial speech doctrine still, at least as it has not yet been overruled explicitly doesn't protect false speech or misleading speech. And I believe that not only for children, but as to adults, there's a, a great deal of what is, could, is advertising that could be described as misleading. Indeed, most of it doesn't say anything that's susceptible to, to being tested for its truth. And But for that, you need to develop some of the evidence that needs to be to show this and it needs to be more widely known and the Red Center is doing great work on this but um, but I think that's probably for now the most profitable avenue to pursue is that first this very threshold test is it is it really information and most advertising I would say is not really what we consider informative 
Um, and if somebody were to take action against some practice that was cons- that they they believe might be false or misleading, would this be action that would happen at the federal level? Would it be at the state level, and the attorneys general might be involved? Well, some of that's a political question about political willingness, but it could happen at either level. Uh, States actually in the last decade or so have shown themselves, I think, to be somewhat more activist in terms of, um, or proactive um, in terms of protecting consumers, sometimes with um, dismal consequences at the federal level, as we saw with Sorrell. But um, so it it really could be either way. I should also add another Another tack, which uh, is maybe productive, is to um, to try to look at those things, those promotional activities, which are not speech, that are, and I would put toy giveaways here, for instance, um, fast food restaurants. Giving away a toy is not an expressive activity; um, it's just outside of the outside of the realm of speech altogether. Now, the problem that you encounter with that is that in the political context, there have been cases, things like burning a draft card, armbands, silent protests, where the courts have said even you don't have to speak in order to be engaging in expressive activity. But I would say this is not expressive activity, it's sales. (laughs) So. Well, it's so interesting. And again, the implications of this are remarkably important because In just the case of food marketing, there are great implications for public health. Great numbers of people are affected. Companies are making enormous profits on the sales of some of these foods. Uh, So the way the courts handle these issues as time goes forward will be very important. So I very much appreciate the way that you have laid this out and told us how the Constitution, namely the First Amendment, is an important player here. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our guest was Tamara Piety, Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Associate Professor of Law at the University of Tulsa College of Law. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, where you'll find a variety of excellent resources, including a lot of information on food, food policy issues, an email newsletter that gets sent out at no cost, of course, on a monthly basis, and a list of the other podcasts that we've recorded with outstanding guests to the Rudd Center. Thank you.